Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. This week, we're welcoming back film critic Stephen Garrett, who's going to talk to me about Air, the new Ben Affleck-directed movie about the creation of the Air Jordan, Michael Jordan's signature shoe. It's a 1980s nostalgia piece, and it's a hagiography of that little corporation that could, the Nike Corporation in Beaverton, Oregon. But first, we're going to talk to our special guest this week. Clifton Duncan is an actor and a performer who has spent the last two or three years protesting and dissenting against the entertainment industry's oppressive COVID policies of testing and mandatory masking and social distancing and mandates. And we're going to have a long and involved and fascinating conversation about that right after these self-produced musical notes. The national COVID emergency officially ends May 10th, but for most people in the United States and around the world, the COVID emergency has been over for a long time, but not if you work on a Hollywood film or TV set. There you still have uh, vaccine mandates and mandatory COVID testing for many productions every day, sometimes multiple times a day. Uh, you still have uh, below the line people, uh, people working in sound and camera masking mandatorily and uh, oftentimes ask, actors are masking um, when they're not filming scenes. So Hollywood is essentially uh, still pretending like uh, COVID is an emergency and like it's, uh, you know, September of 2020, which is when the uh, unions in Hollywood enacted the back to work agreement that set so many of these policies in place. Now the unions and the uh, TV and movie producers just announced that the agreement was going to expire. It was supposed to expire multiple times. It was supposed to expire April 1st, but for some reason they extended it till mid-May. And even then, when um, if, if you're on a production that starts in mid-May or before the expiration, you have to uh, follow the protocols, the COVID protocols, all the way through until the end of the production. I mean, it's, it's the production's um, option to do that, but we all know that they're going to for the most part, exercise that option. So I wrote a piece on the site this week about why Hollywood continues this uh, COVID pantomime and uh, what you know what is behind all that. And I thought that rather than have me rant today about it for 10 minutes, which would not be uh, interesting to anyone but me and maybe two other people, I would bring on a guest. And I uh, have invited Clifton Duncan to join me, Clifton, um, I met Clifton on Twitter, uh, which where you meet all the best people, really. Um, he and I are part of a group of, I guess you'd call it COVID policy skeptics. And Clifton uh, is an actor and a performer and has experienced a lot of um, a lot of blowback for his positions on COVID and COVID restrictions. Hello, Clifton. How are you? Hey, Neil. Uh, thanks for having me. I think you're being a bit presumptuous, however, to... Uh to say that uh, people might find me ranting interesting. Right. Well, you know, we, we at least we're going to mix it up a little bit. <laughs> Just a, a, vari a variety of cranks. 
um, that, that are largely ignored by society. That's why we have this group. We have it, it's like this uh, Twitter message group that we're part of, and it's people from different walks of life who sort of woke up uh, in 2020 or 2021, whenever they woke up and found themselves in a kind of a brave new world. And I know that, you know, you, I find your story especially interesting. You know, I'm a writer, so like I can sit around and say, oh, these policies are bad and these restrictions are bad. But really my life, you know, didn't, I didn't lose my job. You know, my life didn't change that much. Um, you know, and my public appearances were kind of in decline anyway. So it's not like, it's not like I lost that much, you know, I, other than some acquaintances on Facebook because of my, uh, my opinions. But you, you know, you had to suffer some, some serious career uh, blowback, right? Because of your opinions. Maybe tell us a little bit about what your experience was like. Um, well, I was uh, an up and coming actor. I say around 2017, um, things began to take off for me. And, uh, you know, I was booking stuff left and right. I made my Broadway debut. I was working um, in various venues with, um, you know, just luminaries excuse me, luminaries of the theater and um, meeting some idols of mine, like Stephen Sondheim, for instance, um, the great Joel Gray, um, just lots of really wonderful people. And, um, you know, I was also, you know, I broke into TV as well, finally. Um, you know, I'd gone from like nothing. <laughs> I did like, you know, a few co-stars and like a, you know, a random recurring guest star on a star show. And then I did like three guest stars in one year, um, Various shows, NBC, ABC, uh -huh. um, CBS, and that kind of a thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, it just, you know, my, I had a great manager. Um, I had a voiceover agent. At one time I had, a, well, at one time I had a, an agent, a manager, and a publicist, which is very, very expensive. Um, and, uh, you, know, you know, you know you're busy when you're, you, you can't even answer your own emails. My manager was actually stepping in on my behalf to try to schedule things. I just didn't have time to do it. I was just so busy. And... Um, but 2020 rolled around and, um, you know, I'm in the city formerly known as New York and everything shut down. And initially I was totally on, you know, what's called the, um, I was in the Covidian cult. And uh, so about January to March uh, 2020, I was very much um, of the mind that this thing is going to kill us all and no one's doing anything. And um, you know, this is a very New York way to start a sentence, but I was talking to my therapist about it back in January. I said, you know, this, there's no way that this uh, virus hasn't already reached our shores. I mean, we're, we're in New York City. It's, a, it's an international travel hub, tourist attraction, yada, yada, yada. And, um, but over time, um, you know, certain things began to not make sense. Um, I, I got the sense that what we were being asked to do um, in order to mitigate the spread of this virus seemed completely antithetical to having any sort of joy in your life. And I just said, you know, we can't live like this forever. And what we are doing is going to have long reaching ramifications. And, um, but part of the problem was that it was 2020, it was an election year. And um, you know, I'm sure I'm not telling any tales out of school here, but um, the, the, the president at that time was a highly, highly polarizing figure. You think? And especially in the entertainment industry. I mean, you know, I've, I had never seen so many adults just in, with the emotional incontinence of children. And so I think part of the response to the pandemic was driven, it, it, it was largely, excuse me, largely partisan, and, um, you know, it was another way to bash Donald Trump. And um, so I think 
and I think you have to be to be fair, there were also some horrific cases. Uh, you know, there was an actor named Nick Cordero who was 41 years old who contracted the virus and had the and had the worst way with it. Um, I, I think he ended up, you know, he had like a collapsed lung and he lost a leg. And I mean, I think he died of sepsis, actually, or complications from the virus. So I think people were very, very afraid. And of course, you know, and it's interesting because the press at the beginning was completely writing it off. And at the same time, by the way, they were accusing Donald Trump of downplaying it. Um, meanwhile, you had figures like uh, Greg Gutfeld and Tucker Carlson on on Fox in late January. I think also Republican Senator Tom Cotton was warning about this. But people who brought up, you know, hey, something's happening in China and it looks kind of bad. Uh, you know, they were called xenophobes and racists. And it was just the flu bra. That was sort of the um, response to it. And then March, you know, of course, as we all know, everything changed. And, um, you know, I... I I, and it was funny because I was like, you know, sanitizing my my groceries and wiping down my mail and just, you know, any knob and surface and handle it in our apartment. You know, I was just wiping it down and wearing my masks. You know, I mean, I was being, you know, mocked in public because I was wearing a mask and gloves on the subway before anybody else was. And, um, you know, just over time, like, like I said, you know, things just began to not make sense. I thought it was being managed very poorly and what we were doing. And, you know, and our numbers were going down, by the way. And yet restrictions either remained or increased in some cases. And then, you know, I left and moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and then it was like night and day. So meanwhile, the gyms are closed in New York City and people are walking around Central Park and masks on. But I'm I'm in Piedmont Park in Atlanta in June 2020, and people are having cookouts and they're, 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 you know, having beers and their kids are playing and I'm sharing uh, joints with my with my brother's musician friends. Um, and it was pretty much as close to normal as you could be. And you could go to the gym, mask optional. Um, meanwhile, the gyms in New York were closed. Um, so it was really like night and day. I ended up taking up a, taking a job at a nightclub. Um, you know, and over time, I began to say, hold on, there's not really any mass deaths. I'm not seeing any. I looked for them before I moved to Atlanta, and I, I didn't find them. And... Um, that's really when that when the dam broke for me and uh, but I was in Atlanta and then they began to impose um, these uh, mandates and the thing is that um, I think one I think April 2021 is when the mandates came down and the vaccine mandates came down but I had recovered from COVID in December of 2020 which is before the vaccines were rolled out and already at that point you know we, we were aware of you know the robustness of natural immunity and all that stuff and I was sort of like wait and see, but over time it became, uh, you know, kind of like I was getting availability checks. That's when they see, you know, hey, we have we have this project coming up, and you know, they contact your your representative and um, say, you know, is is this actor available for this project? Um, you know, are they interested? You know, yada yada yada. And they were beginning to ask, you know, are they have they been vaccinated or do they plan to get vaccinated against uh, COVID? And it was really weird and. You know, my, my manager, to her credit, never bullied me or pushed me, but I, I let her know. I said, I don't plan on getting this thing. I've already had the disease, and it's, this is really weird. And uh, over time, she just couldn't use me, you know, because they don't get paid unless you work, right? Right. So, so were you, you were being outspoken about this at the same time. You started, you started, um, you started uh, expressing your opinions about the mandates on Twitter and elsewhere, and that, and that ended up getting you... I guess blackballed from the industry. I mean, that's that seems to be what you uh, what you've uh, implied. 
Well, you know, there was an actor named Chad Kimball who um, spoke out on Twitter because uh, he, I think he was in Washington at the time, and he um, was complaining about government overreach, basically, because I think the governor was trying to ban singing in church. And he's like, I refuse to do that. And, you know, I, I just quote tweeted about like, well, you know, Chad is right. And, um, you know, I sort of got dragged by theater Twitter and people were trying to be like, oh, you know, let's let's talk about, you know, the the facts and everything, yada, yada, yada. Um, but like I said before, the industry is it's just very, very left wing. And as ridiculous as it sounds, the 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 pandemic became very partisan. And um, so basically, if you if you spoke out at all against any of what we were, you know, any of the measures we were taking, then that meant you were some crazy uh, MAGA redneck. And um, you didn't deserve uh, to be heard or to work. I mean, it was so ridiculous. And, um, you know, eventually, you know, my manager dropped me, my, my, even my voiceover agent dropped me. And, um, you, you know, I was just of no use to, to them. And um, that's kind of where, where it stood. And all the mandates came down. I mean, you can't even audition. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the casting people became gatekeepers of all of this stuff. And, uh, you know, it was, it's very, very bizarre and, and cult-like in the response. Yeah, you know, I have I found a, a sort of a similar uniformity in uh, in the writing community. I mean, there hasn't been, you know, there there's not hasn't been the same level of um, gatekeeping only because you know writing is such a solitary profession. But I, I've been I was shocked um, at uh, the sort of uniform at how everybody I knew in the community just about seemed to just bow down to uh, mandates and restrictions and rules arbitrarily uh, imposed and who, you know, and there was this kind of um, desire to shut down debate or dissenting voices. Um, you know, my, my own um, come to Jesus moment happened early in like May of 2020 when they reopened movie theaters in Texas where I live. And I, I went to a movie because I run this movie website and I thought, well, this is news. There's a movie theater open within 20 miles of my house. And I, I went to the movies and I didn't die. I didn't even get, I didn't get sick. Um, it was fine. It was totally normal. And I continued to go to the movies and I continued to talk about it. And I was very outspoken about it. And then I just started thinking, well, maybe, maybe masks don't work. Maybe we don't need masks. I never really talked about vaccines. I did get vaccinated. I, as far as I know, I've never had COVID. I mean, I may have been asymptomatic seven times as far as I know, but I, I never, I've never had symptoms of COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, and I was vaccinated and I don't know if it is, I don't know if anything, it had anything to do with it, but I do know that, um, I have found this COVID era to be extremely, um, oppressive in terms of, uh, freedom of speech. And that's the real issue here is not whether or not the, you know, there, there's debate to be had about these medical in interventions, but there is no debate to be had about how the artistic community, writers, actors, producers, directors, uh, and so on, musicians have have pretty much uniformly um, gone against you know the principles of uh, the Constitution that, that give them the ability and the right to to practice their arts. So um, let's talk a little bit about these these Hollywood mandates and how they're still in place, right? Because that that's sort of the the impetus for this this chat. I mean they will not relent. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're still going and they're still going on Broadway as well. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. And, um, you know, it's funny, there was a Deadline article. Deadline, for those who don't know, is a Hollywood, uh, one of the, we call them trades, uh, one of the uh, Hollywood uh, publication, which, you know, gives you all the news, latest scoops, what's going on. And on the article where they, they announced that, the, you know, that the COVID protocols are going to be uh, expiring, you know, there's still, there's still um, comments there from people who are, you know, there's one in particular that said, you know, we're, we're still not going to hire people that didn't get the vaccine, which we're just not going to say that's the reason that we're not hiring them. So they, you know, because these people exercise poor judgment. And uh, so they're still in the grips of this, um, you know, I, I guess I, some might call it a mass psychosis, you know, and whether or not you agree with that kind of a theory. I think one of the reasons that it caught on for people is that it, it finally gave um, a lot of people a framework to explain the the lunacy they were seeing over this kind of stuff. But, you know, again, it's just Hollywood and New York, you know, L.A., L.A., New York City, they're in a bubble. They live in a bubble. They're completely divorced from reality and from the lives that everyone else is living and has been living. And so they are still in this in this um, mind frame, this mindset that uh, that we're living through the black death and the vaccines are these miracle products that give you, uh, you know, uh, that give you uh, bulletproof protection against these these um, this virus, and and everyone knows that that's not true. Everyone knows you can't. They don't stop you from getting sick. At this point, they don't even stop you from dying. And you know, increasingly, we we're finding out more and more concerning um, safety aspects of these drugs. Which you know, of course, as you were alluding to before, in terms of freedom of speech, uh, you you couldn't bring up any of this stuff, or you would get censored, or people would call you some kind of conspiracy theorist. And it's like, well, no, actually, they do cause heart problems. No, actually, they do cause um, menstrual irregularities in women, um, among other problems. So, you know, and, but the thing is, um, you know, I was involved with a group of um, SAG-AFTRA people. Um, SAG-AFTRA, for those who don't know, is the uh, Screen Actors Guild. It's the, you know, the union for um, anyone who wants to work in, in Hollywood, basically. And, um, you know, they're trying to find ways to litigate all this stuff. And I think a big part of it is that um, the unions, they're very powerful and they're sort of arrogant. And, you know, I, I think that they think that they're on the right side of history by all of, you know, about all of this. Yeah. But uh, it's sort of inexcusable because, you know, as you're saying before, they, and, and I think a lot of people who, like myself, uh, chose not to get the uh, vaccine for, you know, and by the way, you know, I've, I was never any sort of activist. Um, you know, I, I never had any kind of crusade. I, I've never told someone they should or shouldn't get the um, the vaccine. You're not an anti-vaxxer, basically. You just you, the COVID vaccine is a separate issue from other vaccines. Well, here's the thing, because you know, I say, look, if I if I love crab cakes and lobster rolls and and popcorn shrimp and pan-seared salmon and fried catfish, but I don't eat oysters, does that make me anti-seafood? And someone even, you know, said that's not a good analogy. I'm like, that's the exact same fucking thing. How can you not say that? And so that's how, that's how you know it's, these people are in a grip of something. It's just like, I just don't want this particular, not only don't want it, but just I don't need it. I already, why would I need to get uh, um, inoculated against a disease my body has already cleared? Well, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think part of it is that Hollywood just loves a blacklist. You know, there's always, always, there's always an excuse, right? And I feel like this era... Uh, you know, I, there, and there's also like, you know, vaccines aside, there's also this sort of shrug about, oh, well, we were locked down. That was a time it happened. But, you know, it set a precedent that um, they could do it again. 
you know, for any number of reasons. And I know I, people say I sound paranoid, um, but it established a, a precedent where, um, you know, any industry could at any time impose these incredibly onerous restrictions uh, on its employees and its members. And, uh, you know, I find I find it troublesome. And, you know, I am. Um, you know, God bless the certain certain high profile actors have finally started to speak out about it. You know, Tilda Swinton said, I'm not going to wear a mask on the set of my latest film. Tim Robbins, uh, who generally ends up on the right side of issues, um, you know, call called them absurd. Uh, and Woody Harrelson, you know, really broke the dam when he appeared on Saturday Night Live and gave his speech. Uh, yeah, but the thing is, you know, th- these people... I don't mean to say, you know, be so they're not paying a price. They're not paying a price. Well, there's that. I mean, you know, they're already, they're already, they've already made it, you know, they've, they've got their money, they've got their awards or whatever, Uh, you know, and I know, and I know, I know someone who worked on a film with Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson has had these kind of views for a long time, but only now when it's sort of a little bit more safe to do so, he comes out. I mean, Tim Robbins is another person who, again, you know, not, nothing against him, but um, one, it's sort of irritating because no one listens unless unless a famous person is talking about this kind of stuff. But again, it's two years too late. The yeah. the the one person that I have respect for in in this regard is um, Evangeline Lilly of Ant Man and the Wasp because she you know she went to one of those defeat the mandates rallies in D.C. Um, I think what, what two years or so ago, and she said directly, she said no one should be forced to inject anything into their bodies. This is this is a violation of bodily autonomy. And I really respect and admire her for saying that because she did it at a time when it just it wasn't as safe to do so. Not that it's safe to do so now. Um, And again, but even then, you know, she's insulated by a career and by her money, whereas someone like myself who, you know, I was doing mostly theater. You know, you don't you don't do theater to get rich. And, um, you know, I was just taking off. Um, so I, I spoke out and I said, this is, this is wrong. And, um, you know, what do I have to show for it? Um, you're integri- you have your integrity, really Clifton. Yeah. And, and my heart isn't enlarged. Uh, so, you know, it, it I, I mean, I, I, I guess, um, and that, that's nice, but again, you know, it goes back to this idea that uh, you, you mentioned blacklists and a lot of this is very political for, for people. And, Again, again, what they never consider, and this is how you know they're being completely disingenuous or just completely dogmatic and deaf to any sort of reason, is that this industry, right, um, has gone full on into diversity and inclusion and these sort of progressive ideals and anti-racism specifically. And um, what's ironic about that is that, uh, you know, 90, I mean, black Americans vote over 90 percent Democrat, and yet they're the least vaccinated demographic. And um, so when they're imposing these mandates in New York City or, you know, or in California, the people that they are, uh, the people that they're excluding from work and from these uh, public spaces, you know, bars, restaurants, theaters, et cetera, are primarily are disproportionately black people followed by Latinos. So they're not even they won't even obey their own sort of principles about um, inclusivity and and the irony is that there is a, 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 an argument, I suppose, for higher uptake in, in the black community, given, you know, obesity epidemic and high blood pressure, diabetes, which make us more vulnerable to severe COVID. But that being said, um, you know, it's just funny that these same people will spend, they spent generations, they've spent generations um, convincing black people 
that every institution in the United States, from the government to the healthcare system, is anti-black, and yet then they turn right around and they expect black people to just line right up and get these brand new shots in their arms. It's it's ridiculous and it's so disrespectful. And the and, and I don't think that they'll ever again. They're so I mean part of endemic to to sort of left wing ideology is this is hubris. They think they're better than everybody else. They will never acknowledge what they've done and the damage that they've wrought. They'll never acknowledge how racist these mandates are. They'll never acknowledge it. They'll, they'll just say to themselves, well, the science changed and it was the right thing to do at the time. And um, it goes back to, like, I don't think I'll ever trust these people again. And they revealed themselves. I don't think that they're liberal. I don't think that they're progressive. They call themselves this. But um, to me, the mask came off, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I think that Hollywood uh, in particular revealed a very... I mean, anyone who's tried to work in Hollywood, as I have, knows knows that it has a dark and ugly and hypocritical side. But it it really, I think it showed its true colors during COVID. Um, from movie theater shutdowns to um, these onerous restrictions on set, which had, you're right, it had a strong class and race component. I, um, you know, it, I don't think it helped my career, <laughs> but I'm proud that I have like spoken up um, against some of this stuff because I think it's the right thing to do. And, you know, you did the right thing as well and you exercised your rights of freedom of speech as a citizen. I am sorry that it hurt your career because, you know, it sounds like you were on, on the way to something good. Who knows? It could still turn around for you. You're, you're a young man. You got talent. Well, I, you got I, talent. I, I, I say youngish, but I do want to, I do want to focus on the class issue of it as well yeah. because, this was also something that really offended me, you know, because while you had people around the country, I mean, I noticed this trend, right? You had, uh, you know, restaurateurs, uh, uh, salon owners, bar owners, you know, barbers, um, et cetera, et cetera, who were fighting tooth and nail to keep their establishments open. And again, on, on the left, they, they reduced things to such simplistic, cartoonish um, yeah caricatures of reality yeah, yeah. And, you, know, you got you had the famous Patton oswald tweet where tweet where people were he was saying that people were screaming that they, we, we wanted to open fuddruckers right you know meanwhile you know nancy pelosi and uh, and Lori lightfoot and gretchen whitmer are going to the salon themselves right in, in violation of gavin of, newsom eating gavin at the french right, yeah at the french laundry right complete utter- i live in austin texas where the mayor you know a very rich democrat uh issued in no, in November of 2020 a uh, a video message to all Austinites to stay home because there was a surge i think it was the uh, it was there was some variant there was a surge he he issued this this stay home mandate while he was at his daughter's wedding in Cabo San Lucas yeah yeah i mean so so what 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 you began to emerge in the entertainment industry right is it you know in the theater you had all these actors who you know they they might have um, broadway credits and so that you know they might have a um you know, they, they, they might be on cast recordings, for instance, and they get royalties from that. And they're getting residuals from, you know, whatever television that they've done. And, um, and, and again, Hollywood, they actually opened up really quickly. They just had these ridiculous protocols in place, but you could still work. You know, I mean, I, I, did, a, I did a quick guest star on, um, on CBS in January 2021 before the mandates came down. And, um, you know, but they just had a bunch of, of ridiculous testing protocols or whatever and, you know, masking and all this stupid stuff. Um, and again, it was so dumb because, you know, you you had to wear masks at, at all times. They, they had what I call COVID cops on set that were yeah. enforcing these ridiculous rules. But then 
you know, when the cameras were rolling, that's when the masks came off. So wait a minute, you mean the virus, you know, magically stops transmitting at 24 frames per second? It doesn't make any sense. So I was a contestant on a game show. Uh, That's the only time I had that experience was in May of 2021. And I'd already been vaccinated, but I had to like do nasal swab while supervised by a COVID coordinator on Zoom twice and then mail those swabs in. Uh, just to make sure I didn't have COVID, even though I was vaccinated. And at the time, we thought vaccines were a miracle cure. And then I had to swab twice when I got to L.A. And I had to isolate in my hotel room, you know, and, and all this stuff. And it was just, it's just, you know, I, and then I had to wear a face shield when I got to the set. <laughs> you know? Ridiculous. Yeah, it's never making any sense. But, but, but the point is that uh, while, while people were fighting around the country, like regular people, you know, we're, we're fighting tooth and nail, you know, even sometimes um, incurring the wrath of their governments just to keep their businesses open. Meanwhile, you had these people in Hollywood who were still working, making all this money and people in theater who, again, you know, were still getting paid. Um, but, but they're demanding to be paid not to work and sneering at anybody who actually, you know, had some skin in the game and, and had, uh, you know, a business to take care of. I mean, again, it was so it was so classist yeah. and. You know, and again, it goes back to the partisan nature of this, which is that the Democrats have now become the party of the the bourgeois and and these cultural elites. And um, you know, which is funny because they think that they I mean, I guess you could say the socialist left, um, they, they do have a passion for for the workers. I mean, Bernie Sanders really, really excited a lot of, I think, populist left sentiment um, for workers and for and for labor. But um you know, I just saw all these pampered, pretentious, quote unquote, artists who were looking, who were thumbing down their noses at, at people that they thought were a bunch of stupid Trump supporters. When it's like, no, they're, they're just regular people yeah. who are trying to live and do their thing. Yeah. And when I'm in Atlanta and I'm working alongside people who are working 10, 12, 14 hour shifts, you know, just trying to better their lives. While these, um, while these ridiculous, pretentious people and progressives in New York and California are, are sneering at them. I mean, again, it, it goes back to this classic nature. Hollywood showed, to me, which side they're on during, during the pandemic. And I think there's a reason why uh, people sneer at them. Uh, online. It's all they can do. They, they don't have any power. Um, and, you know, I, I just, I, I, I find the continuing the saying that they're ending these restrictions while actually continuing them to be very much in character with how uh, the entertainment industry has behaved over the last three years. It's been disheartening for me. Um, I'm just glad, I'm just glad movie theaters are open again and they're still making movies, but it's not enough. And I just wish there were a little bit more uh, cost to pay, a little bit more of a reckoning. Regardless, uh, Clifton, we're going to, we're going to cut this off here, but I, I thank you so much for, uh, spending a half an hour of your time with me today and hopefully um, hopefully we'll open up an eye or two all right man. Uh, thanks Neil. thanks for having me right. has been a tough year. Our sales are down, our growth is down. Sonny, I brought you in here to grow the basketball business. People don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA all-star shoe. There's nothing cool about Nike. 
you would have to have a pretty compelling pitch. I can tell them the one thing the other companies can't compete with. Our basketball division is terrible. I do not love it. This is where you come up with a brilliant idea that no one else can see. Let's hear it. I got it. I found him. Who's that? Jesus? Can't afford it. I'm willing to bet my career on one guy. My name's Sonny Vaccaro. I'm with Nike. Do you typically make it a habit of showing up at people's front doors unannounced? I don't like to take no for an answer. Oh, man. Here we go. You ask me what I do here. This is what I do. I find you players, and I feel it this time. Okay, it's risky. When you were selling sneakers out of the back of your Plymouth, that was risky. Don't change that now. For a rookie? Yes. Who's never set foot on an NBA court. That's the literal definition of rookie. Yeah. What's the plan? We build a shoe line around just him. I need the greatest basketball shoe that's ever been made. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. Our movie of the week is not Super Mario Brothers, thank goodness. It is Air, starring Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, and directed by Ben Affleck. And it is the inspiring true story of how Michael Jordan became a shoe. Uh, The the creation of the Air Jordan sneaker in 1984. Stephen Garrett reviewed it for us this week. He returns proudly to the show. Hello, Stephen. Yes. So Air, yes, I saw it uh, last night. I was wearing... um, Sensible loafers, uh, <laughs> in, in, in you know that were fairly inexpensive that I'm wearing down to the nub, uh, and so this is this is a movie essentially about the corporate machinations behind uh, getting Michael Jordan to sign with Nike in 1984. I mean, there's really nothing more complicated than that. It tries to be about more than that, but it's really not. It's not. It's and and actually, it's. Uh, uh, I think because it's not more complicated than that, it, it feels like it should be an hour long. Like there's not a lot to cover. It surprisingly balloons up to almost two hours, I think. Um, and I think that's based largely on the charm of the cast and the, actually I, I found the, the script uh, a lot wittier than I was expecting it. A lot yes. more fun, a lot. Um, I don't know. It just feels like, a nothing burger of a movie. Like it's, it's really inconsequential. So fundamentally inconsequential in terms of what's at stake, who's involved and who are like, who are the, who are the winners here? Everybody's a winner. Everybody's an incredible winner in this, in this story, even before it starts, except for Nike, I guess we're supposed to feel bad because they're only number three, but even though they have revenue of $900 million, they're number three um, in basketball shoes. Yes. In basketball shoes. Exactly. Exactly. Not not in it's shoes. They're still they're, they're, they're the champion of running shoes by far, but basketball. It, but they're not cool. That's the that's what it comes down. To. They're not. That's what it comes down to. This is a movie about people who are not cool, who desperately want to be cool, and by the end of the movie, they become cool. And we are supposed to care, I guess. Now I, I'm not saying that as a slight, but it's a really entertaining movie. It probably played really well with your crowd. Right? Yeah, there were dudes. There were dudes, and you know, a lot of times I see movies where it's like men, women dragging men along. There were men dragging women along to this. There were there, there were dudes like middle aged white dudes. It's like tears weren't streaming down their face because it's not a tearjerker movie. It's like a hangout fun bro movie. But they were just like wrapped. They were like the shoes, the shoes. They, they yes. couldn't get enough. They couldn't get enough. Of it. Like oh yes, the shoes. You know, and I, I could smell, I could smell their, their mid-price cologne from where I, I was sitting. And, you know, 
look, I agree with you. Like, I feel like it's kind of a fun bro hangout movie. I mean, it's got all, all the charm of Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and Jason Bateman. <laughs> Jason Bateman, but but, uh, but also all the limits of that charm, right? Because we're talking yeah. about Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. It is a white brohigh movie uh, yeah. for sports yeah. lovers, especially yeah. those who could afford to buy really expensive uh, sneakers. Yeah, but it's not. I mean, it's not. You know, and then Chris Tucker is in there. He's kind of a, he's and he plays an entertaining uh, black Nike executive. Viola Davis. I, um, you know, gives off uh, I'm trying to win Oscar vibes as Michael Jordan's mother. But Michael Jordan himself is not a character in his own story. He's like, they just, they... And he's the Prophet Muhammad, right? They they can't show his image or likeness, right? They they show tape yeah. of him playing uh, at his best or early in his career at his best. But he, he, it is the weirdest. He's a disconnected voice and we see the back of his head and he's always, or, or somebody's conveniently standing in front of him. I mean, it's like Eyes Wide Shut, except, you know, it's not the right? You have our attention. I believe in your son. I believe he's the future. And his story is going to make us want to fly. But the shoe is just a shoe. Until my son steps into it. Got a name for it? Air Jordan. I don't know. Seriously? Well, maybe it'll grow on me. There is prophecy in the movie. Like, there's a whole speed, the whole central speech. <laughs> there that, is. Yes. That, that where, where, where Matt Damon predicts Michael Jordan's future, including <laughs> his including his tragic baseball career and the, death, <laughs> and the death of his father. And I'm just like, my, I mean, Mike, yes, Michael and his gambling and oh, and his gambling problems. And it's like, yes, Michael Jordan has had some ups and downs in his life, but he's also like the multi-billionaire owner of an NBA franchise. And, you know, he's not exactly a loser in life here. And, and, and I'm just like, what are, what are we celebrating? It's just such a strange, know. such a strange, it's not a bad film. I mean, it just, you know, it, from point A to point B to point C, it does work. And there, there, there are plenty of laughs in it. And like, it's kind of got this kind of, you know, has a feel the kind of grim atmospherics of an eighties movie, you know? <laughs> I mean, when it doesn't, when he's cutting, doing a quick montage of like Ghostbusters and Beverly Hills Cop and, you know, yeah. dropping music cues like like a like an addict. I mean, like it's bizarre. And also, well, not more cool like, music either. You know, not cool music like money for nothing. And all, all I need is a miracle. And all I need is a miracle. <laughs> and time after time, they are the laziest, most top 40 early 80s. Matt Damon driving on a on a rainy night in Portland, crying while listening to Cindy Lauper. I'm like, no, this is not cool. Well, not cool. And wearing cool. his members only jacket. I think we've hit the key to the movie. The movie is about people who are so fundamentally uncool, desperately trying to be as cool because they like Mike. They want to be like Mike. Let's make a shoe that Mike will wear so that we can wear that shoe and feel like we're Mike. Like that's all it is. It's about people who are not cool trying to be cool. But it doesn't satirize that notion. It celebrates it, you know. And here, you know, it's, and it's like, and, it, and it's not like it's not like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon aren't cool. I mean, you know, they're 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 very rich. Ben Damon, Ben Affleck is married to Jennifer Lopez. You know, he's not an underdog. These are not. And wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. And that's and that's cool. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's kind of cool. Come on. I mean, it's kind of cool. 
you, they, you know what needle drop they should have put in there? They should have put in Huey Lewis singing It's Hip to Be Square. That would have been the perfect, that should have been the end credit. Yeah. Because that's basically what. Instead, it's more. Instead, it's more. Hey, geographic clips of Michael Jordan. So let let's talk about. Wait, wait, wait. Can I? Can I? Can I? Can I? Can I briefly put in here too that this movie was made? Amazon said, "Let's make this movie. uh, We'll just put it on our streaming service." And honestly, it feels like a really expensive episode that you would find on the Food Network, which is like the invention of the Big Mac or whatever these corporate origin story. Uh, uh, documentaries that are mini documentaries that you see with bad actors and bad production value, which I love when I watch on cable. And now suddenly it's a $90 million movie with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and Viola Davis. And it's a, it's like you're saying, it just feels weird. It's just what, what is it? It's an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, but without the nuance. Um, and with, you know, with, with worse music. So, but I guess here's the thing. But it's charming enough that they were like, you know what? People I think will like this. They seem to be reacting. Let's put it in movie theaters. And I, I love that. I think that's great. This is a movie you should see with a lot of people. It's a completely innocuous, very entertaining, forgettable movie. I'm happy to see any movie of any kind in a theater. (laughs) And it's not horrible. It's not horrible. You know, it's like your three star review is about right. My question is, why do we have this trend of corporate hey geography movies? Like there's, you know, recently out is Tetris, which is mostly on Apple TV Plus, but it it, it showed on um, some uh, theaters here. And, it, you know, that is about basically it's about the creation of the Tetris video game. But really, it's it's elevating the, the Nintendo Game Boy to this, you know pantheon of of great inventions that we must celebrate. And there's also there's a movie coming out about the guy who created the Flaming Hot Cheeto. <laughs> right. Directed by uh, Eva Longoria, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, okay. And, and, and then, you know, oh, there's a Blackberry movie coming out too. Right, right. That's right. And it's like, so, it's like... Yeah. And, I'm, and, and to me, these feel like these, these, mod, these modern day versions of these like movies you might find at, uh, on Turner Classic Movies at like two in the afternoon that it's like, the Alexander Graham Bell story, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, mean, I must, I that. must invent the telephone, <laughs> you know. And it's like, and and obviously these movies aren't as uh, as cheap as those films were, but it's the same thing where it's like we're celebrating capitalist achievement in its most banal way, you know. Right. Right. I mean, I, I haven't seen BlackBerry yet, uh, but from the trailers I've seen and everything, what I've read about it, it looks hilarious. So I, it feels more like a satire of that kind of thing, which I think makes it digestible in a way that Air maybe isn't because Air does take itself so earnestly. Um, but Yeah, well, that's the thing, too. It really does resemble like an old school Hollywood movie where it's like, Thomas Edison toiling away in his Edison Park laboratory to create electricity or whatever, you know? Yeah, but he's inventing a telephone, which really changes the world. They're, they're just refining a shoe around a celebrity. Like, I guess, yeah. who cares? Fundamentally, the stakes are so not even low. They're just non-existent. Like, no one would care if this is invented or not. You know what I mean? Or I guess people would because they love the Air Jordan. It did change the world. It changed. It changed the cult. You know, if fashion is the leading fashion is the leading edge of culture. It's not like it's an unimportant story, um, but it's just it's just very strangely presented. And you know, there's just one brief mention where Phil Knight, uh, who played by Ben Affleck, who's quite funny as Phil Knight, I gotta say, you know, um, 
he's like, these are all made in South Korea and Taiwan. I'm like, show me the sweatshop. I know. <laughs> if you really want to make a meaningful, interesting movie, do that. I mean, Viola Davis kind of points to that as the moral authority. I mean, yeah, I, I feel like every scene she's in feels like an Oscar worthy scene because she's just amazing. But um, in, in this in case, there, there, suddenly she creates a certain moral framework that was missing from the movie and context about what is truly at stake, which is this sense that players are inherently being exploited by big corporations. And this player is so good that he has enough to negotiate to win a stake in something that's never been given out before, which is a piece of the revenue, you know? So I, that to me, I was like, okay, now this is somewhat substantial, somewhat more yeah. substantial. That would be a great article. <laughs> I know, exactly. But Tetris, that's the weirdest. I mean, I, I, I certainly, we had talked about it. I was not planning to see it all. Cause I, first of all, I was never a big fan of Tetris. I appreciate that it's addictive and, and fun to play, but it just was not my, I actually, it stressed me out the way that like centipede would stress me out or like defender. If you remember those uh-huh. games from the early eighties, like, they were fun, and then after a while, I would get overwhelmed and stressed out, and I was like, ah, this is not fun for me. Anyway, but the point is, people love it, and and they do, like in this, like you're saying, in, in this movie, the way that they do in, uh, in Air, the real, the, the big reveal, like the pulling off of the handkerchief, like quite literally, isn't there a piece of cloth that they cover the, they reveal the sneaker, yes. and it's like in this glowing light, and you might as well hear the, you know, the heavenly chorus, you know, like kind of sing out. The same thing happens in Tetris where, you know, Taryn Egerton, who's uh, selling the, uh, the rights, doesn't even own Tetris. He's a middleman. This is a movie about a middleman trying to make a deal and make money off of other people's, you know, uh, talent. But he gets a chance to see the Game Boy and you don't know what it is until they literally pull off, you know, the, the handkerchief. And then suddenly there's a Game Boy and it's in that, pretty much the same beatific light that 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 she was in and you're right what are we what are we becoming why why is this why is this hallowed ground to look at these things that are fundamentally just distractions or fashion or ways to uh like you know avoid boredom because they're amusing in a trivial way nostalgia gen x nostalgia for you nostalgia i guess so yeah all right so uh so steven are you gonna um I know it's a conflict of interest, but are you going to uh, review? I'm working on a screenplay, and when it gets made, are you going to review my my movie about the creation of the Hebrew national hot dog? <laughs> it's gonna, I don't gonna, know. Gonna, I've got. I actually going to reveal going to reveal an uncooked wiener in a spot. It's going it's going to be under a blanket, and like this this hot dog answers to a higher authority. Pull the blanket <laughs> off, and there it is—a kosher hot dog sitting there on a pedestal. Oh, such a hot dog. I already optioned Nathan's famous, so I, I can't by law. You know, my lawyer won't let me look at it. Competing Holy hot dogs. Dog, yeah. All right, air. All right, air is in theaters now. Um, you want to be like Stephen Garrett and see every movie you can. Uh, Stephen, we'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Thanks, Stephen Garrett. Air is in theaters now, and then it will be on TV soon after that and you can all go out and buy some shoes i'm actually not wearing shoes at all right now not in protest but because i work at home and why wear shoes if you don't have to uh bill knight doesn't wear shoes in the movie so i'm not either at least uh until i leave the house and even sometimes then. anyway thanks to steven and also thanks to clifton duncan for talking to me about the absurd hollywood covid restrictions that are still in place 
and also the absurd restrictions that are in some places still in place on Broadway as well. Clifton uh, protested these restrictions at, at great personal cost to himself, and I admire him for that. I'm Neil Pollock. I am the greatest living American writer. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We will talk to you soon. Original Production.